Welcome, comrades, to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is April 11th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Of course, tonight's class is going to be on Marxism and the National Question, as it was wrote by Comrade Stalin back in 1913. So we're going to be going over and looking at the New Outlook Publishers version of Marxism and the National Question and studying this. Uh, which is very necessary. We wanted to have this class for a, a good long time now. All right, comrade, is there anything that you want to say before we begin? No, I just wanted to say that the uh, content that we're going to go over is is fairly dense uh, theoretically, so don't feel afraid to ask questions. You know, uh, this is a difficult topic, and we want people to ask questions to clarify. That's all. All right. Uh, we're going to be going over uh, Marxism and the National Question by J.V. Stalin. I, I did want to make the point that in this text, you're going to see Stalin refer to the Social Democratic Party a lot. Back then, before it was the Communist Party, it was called the Social Democratic Party. So just understand that we mean the old communists and not the, you know, the social democrats that we have today, like the DSA people. Okay, so what we'll be learning today, we'll start off with an introduction. We'll then go into the, the definition of a nation given by Stalin. We'll talk about the class nature of a national liberation struggles. We'll talk about the false solutions put forth by the Austrian Second International and the Jewish Bundes that existed. And then we'll then finish it off with the Marxist-Leninist solution. Okay, so introduction. So uh, for historical background, Stalin wrote this uh, pamphlet at the end of 1912 and early 1913. Originally, the book was called National Question and Social Democracy. The pamphlet was written seven years after the 1905 revolution that was betrayed by the liberal cadets in Russia. And following there were counter-revolutionary attacks by the Tsarist regime. Essentially, the Social Democrats or the communists learned their lesson that when they lead revolutions or lead these national liberation struggles or democratic movement, that the proletariat must be at the vanguard of the movement. They can't share the power equally with the, um, the bourgeois democratic movement. So a few key terms you'll hear a lot. So cultural national autonomy, the theory of national sovereignty put forward by the Austrian Social Democrats, asserting that autonomy should be on the basis of culture and language rather than definite political boundaries. Obviously, the definition Stalin uses is more uh, rich, but this uh, suffices for the time being. We'll go over the exact definition later on. Regional autonomy theory put forward by the Bolshevik faction of the Russian Social Democrats that asserted that a territory with defined boundaries and made up of a cultural and linguistic group 
or sets of groups that differs from the broader state be given political sovereignty that allows the free cultural and linguistic development for said groups. And then right of nations to self-determination, the policy set forward by the communists that states that a national group within a defined boundary has a right to determine their own destiny. This can be through secession if determined by the majority or by regional autonomy if they wish to remain within the state union. It should be stated that while the communists would not get in the way of the right to self-determination, the party would agitate among the masses for a solution that serves the proletariat the best. For example, if secession would free the nation from national oppression within a bourgeois democratic state, but put them in turn into a, put the national proletariat under the control of an anti-democratic force like fascist or feudal, et cetera, ruling class, communists may agitate for regional autonomy within a union. Okay, and so we'll go into the Marxist-Leninist definition of a nation. A nation is a historically constituted, stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture. It goes without saying that a nation, like every historical phenomenon, is subject to the law of change, has its history, its beginning and end. It must be emphasized that none of the above characteristics taken separately is sufficient to define a nation. More than that, it is sufficient for a single one of these characteristics to be lacking and the nation ceases to be a nation. It is possible to conceive of people possessing a common national character who nevertheless cannot be said to constitute a single nation if they are economically disunited, inhabit different territories, speak different languages, and so forth. Such, for instance, are the Russian, Galician, American, Georgian, and Caucasian Highland Jews, who in our opinion do not constitute a single nation. It is possible to conceive of people with a common territory and economic life who nevertheless would not constitute a single nation because they have no common language and no common national character. Such, for instance, are the Germans and Letts in the Baltic region. Finally, the Norwegians and the Danes speak one language, but they do not constitute a single nation owing to the absence of the other characteristics. It is only when all these characteristics are present together that we have a nation. Further, what indeed distinguish the English nation from the American nation at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries when America was still known as New England. Not national character, of course, for the Americans had originated from England and brought with them to America not only the English language, but also the English national character, which of course they could not lose so soon 
although under the influence of the new conditions, they would naturally be developing their own specific character. Yet, despite their more or less common character, they at the time already constituted a nation distinct from England. Obviously, New England as a nation differed then from England as a nation, not by its specific national character, or not so much by its national character, as by its environment and conditions of life, which were distinct from those of England. It is therefore clear that there is, in fact, no single distinguishing characteristic of a nation. There is only a sum total of characteristics of which, when nations are compared, sometimes one characteristic, national character, for instance, sometimes another, language, or sometimes a third, territory, economic conditions, etc., stands out in sharper relief. A nation constitutes the combination of all these characteristics taken together. Okay, so uh, Bauer's point of view, which identifies a nation with its national character, divorces the nation from its soil and converts it into an invisible self-contained force. The result is not a living and active nation, but something mystical, intangible, and supernatural. For I repeat, what sort of nation, for instance, is a Jewish nation which consists of Georgian, Dagestanian, Russian, American, and other Jews, the members of which do not understand each other, since they speak different languages, inhabit different parts of the globe, will never see each other and will never act together, whether in time of peace or in time of war. No, it is not for such paper nations that social democracy draws up its national program. It can reckon only with real nations which act and move and therefore insist on being reckoned with. Bauer is obviously confusing a nation, which is a historical category, with tribe, which is an ethnographical category. All right. Thank you, Cameron. So we'll go ahead and go with the first hand. Comrade from Canada, you have the floor. Thank you. Um, I'll try to word this succinctly. What was the prelude to this? What was happening that caused this to needed to be answered, if that makes sense? Not necessarily why it was written. But why was it written? What is it answering? Thank you. Um, well, you have to understand that at this point, uh, the czarist uh, the regime still existed. It was um, more, uh, they, they called it a constitutional monarchy, but it was still uh, an autocratic state. There were all the border regions, such as Ukraine, Belarus, um, some of the other um, present-day uh, republics that exist in the East, they were starting to build strife against the czarist regime, and particularly against the landlord class of the, of the larger, so of the Russian czarist regime, against the um, national bourgeois of these republics, or soon-to-be republics after the um, October Revolution and you know, so there, there was a lot of uh, nationalist sentiments going on. 
and the Austrian Social Democrats put forward their own idea of uh, national liberation, which was, well, well, we'll see, it's deeply flawed. All right, thank you, comrades. Comrade from Georgia, you have the floor. Uh, yes, uh, he referred to uh, Norwegians and Danes speaking the same language. Did he make a mistake or were Norwegian and Danes considered the same parts of the same language back then? Uh, a question like it mentioned, he uh, mentioned like uh, Norwegians and Danes being uh, of different nations, even though they spoke the same language. Did he make a mistake or were Norwegian and Danes considered separate as a part of the same language back then? I know that they're, that the two are mutually intelligible, so Norwegians and Danes can speak together. But what he's saying is that they had different, um, different territories and they were disconnected with each other, so they weren't considered a nation, a single nation. All right, thank you. Comrade, your hand went up. I don't know if you were... Uh, Stalin here is saying that how a nation comes to be comes from a, uh, a fundamental premise that exists prior to the nation existing. Language is just the characteristic of a people. So regardless of uh, 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 Danish and whoever speaking the same language, uh, Stalin here is arguing that the, the history leading up to these two different constituted people are, are materially different. Right? They come from two of, uh, fundamentally different premises. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Comrade from Indiana, you have the floor. Yes. My question concerns, uh, I remember when I read uh, Marxism and the National Question, there's a part um, uh, about Bauer's program where Stalin is, is, is like talking about like uh, like he wanted social democrats are in like the business of like inventing nations. Uh, can you give me context behind that? I don't remember exactly the quote. Yeah, well, I, I yeah, we actually have that section in uh, the slide, so we will get to it. But essentially, he was uh, arguing against the idea of national cultural autonomy, which basically says that let's say uh, all English speakers in the world, they might consider them one whole nation. So Australia, US, England, Ireland, etc. Um, and Stalin wasn't content with that. He was saying they may share a language, they may share some characteristics, but they are not one single nation and they can't be treated as one single nation. So I hope that answers. And uh, yeah, if any of the other co-hosts want to answer any of the questions too, uh, feel free to chime in. Yeah, I wanted to touch on what I asked on why this was written. Uh, it was mainly written to a, a rise in nationalistic sentiment after the failure of the 1905 revolution. And it was written as their program to combat the nationalist sentiments. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrades. Comrade from Arkansas, you have the floor. Thank you. I would like to address the question that someone someone had about uh, the Scandinavian region. I believe this is very interesting and relevant to the class because it shows how nations can change over time. Their Norse ancestors, very long time ago, they, uh, they were considered one people, one culture. But, um, well, as we know, they do consider themselves different nations now even if very close nations. That's all for me. All right, thank you, comrade. 
Comrade from South Dakota, you have the floor. All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I just want to say first off, comrades, I'm really excited for this class. I think it's a very, very good book for us to go over. Um, I guess my question is that in the part, Stalin clearly states that basically the United States is a nation. And he kind of gives, you know, some background for that. But it it seems like much of the much of the left today, even those who would say they support Stalin, I feel are in a disagreement with that. Uh, it seems a lot of them think, or they, a lot of them will say things like United States is a, settle, a settler colony, or they'll say things like that. I was just wondering maybe why they keep coming to that conclusion or what, I guess, what they are getting incorrect versus Stalin's analysis. Yeah, we'll actually see, I mean, as far as the settler colonial, like this idea of land back, there's never a very clear theory as to what they are actually referring to. You could ask a bunch of different people and they'll all have a different answer. But um, one thing that seems central is that they share this uh, similar view that the Austrian Social Democrats had, which was basing it on uh, either linguistic groups, racial groups, but not necessarily ones that have a shared, um, a stable um, population within a given area. Now, back in the, um, I believe the 30s, um, someone who um, studied the black belt theory could probably answer this better than me, but there was this idea that, um, you know, after the Civil War, after the freeing of the slaves, there was a big population of African Americans down in the southern in the southern states that shared a, a similar culture, similar history, and uh, they wanted to make that its own nation within the United States. The United States is actually a state made of multiple nations. But that quickly changed after the Harlem Renaissance. When, 90 seconds. Uh, there was a big uh, exodus of the, these Americans to bigger cities all across the country. So the population dwindled and there was a lot of assimilation. And that's why the theory was eventually abandoned. But I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I just want to make a quick comment, uh, especially what we just said. What seems to be a trend among quote-unquote leftists, or many people that call themselves Marxists and Leninists, they'll read these works of Lenin and Stalin and then embody everything that they're criticizing. It's almost like they're taking the reverse uh, understanding of what they're trying to say. All right. Thank you for that, comrades. And comrade from Pennsylvania, you have the floor. The United States, not like a real nation or whatever. That's not true, but like they... That's not the point that is supposed to be made when that's said often times. Like, so in Stalin's work, the nation was defined because they split from England. Those colonies where they had killed the indigenous, most of the indigenous people in those areas. And so like the citizens in that area, they shared like a common culture, economy, and language. And so... They were a nation, and then that nation expanded with settler colonialism, killing more and more indigenous people and then assimilating them. It is like a settler colonial nation that should not <laughs> exist, but it's 
it doesn't constitute a nation. Like there are populations that have been colonized that are within the territory. Yeah, so uh, actually what Stalin is saying is that this is not an abstract system of rationale that is applied haphazardly in a vacuum. No, what Stalin is saying is more akin to there is a historical event that occurred that formed the national characteristics, the formalization of that nation state or nationality. Take uh, North Korea, for example. In form, North and South Korea are very similar, right? So in form, these things speak the same language, share similar traditions, of culture, yada, yada, right? Uh, this doesn't matter, right? What matters is a historical event that constitutes a new identity of separate peoples. This is what Stalin is saying, that nationhood arrives through a historically material process that is not abstract and is not, uh, cannot be uh, abstracted and extracted from its real premises and applied elsewhere. No, it's something that really happens in real time on that specific term. All right. Thank you, comrade. And we'll go to comrade general secretary, Angelo. Then we have to get back to the presentation. Okay. Let me just clarify a couple of things. There's a little confusion here. Every country grows and as they grow, they conquer other people. So every country is not looked at as a settler state. You can do that, but that's taken away what Stalin's saying that as the country grows, as it conquers other peoples in that country. England is another example. France is another example. Um, France is a one unit. England is a one unit. There's many separate areas. There's Scotland and Ireland and other. As they conquer, they grow. They're still a new nation state because they speak the other characteristics. They have the language, the culture, etc. That's number one. The other thing is Berobajan. Uh, the Jewish Autonomous Republic in Russia is another example of that. And all the different small republics and semi-republics that are in Russia and in the Soviet Union are that way also. So it has nothing to do with conquering other peoples. Every country has done that. Every single country. Canada has done that also. So we're not going to call every single country in the planet a settler state. It's taken away from the main idea. The main idea is that it's an entity of a nation. And that nation now, according to us as communists, has a struggle going on, a class struggle. That's the main thing. The class struggle, not winning over battles and taking over other indigenous people. Thank you. That's all I wanted to clarify. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And before we go back to the presentation, I just want to echo what comrade Stalin said at the beginning of the thing that says the chapter about the nation. He says that the national characteristics that define a nation are a common language, a shared territory, a shared economic life, and a shared psychological makeup. If you have one of those things missing, it's not a nation. It doesn't matter if you have three of those and you don't have one of the other ones, it's not a nation. He's very clear on that. So we just need to understand that as we go forward. The class nature of national liberation struggles. The struggle began and flared up to be sure, not between nations as a whole, but between the ruling classes of the dominant nation and of those that had been pushed into the background. The struggle is usually conducted by the urban petty bourgeoisie 
of the oppressed nation against the big bourgeoisie of the dominant nation, an example being Czechs and Germans, while by the rural bourgeoisie of the oppressed nation against the landlords of the dominant nation, Ukrainians and Poland, for example, or by the whole national bourgeoisie of the oppressed nations against the ruling nobility of the dominant nation, as in with Poland, Lithuania, and the Ukraine in Russia. The bourgeoisie plays the leading role. The chief problem for the young bourgeoisie is the problem of the market. Its aim is to sell its goods and to emerge victorious from competition with the bourgeoisie of a different nationality. Hence, its desire is to secure its own, quote-unquote, its, quote-unquote, home market. The market is the first school in which the bourgeoisie learns its nationalism. But matters are usually not confined to the market. The semi-feudal, semi-bourgeois bureaucracy of the dominant nation intervenes in the struggle with its own methods of arresting and preventing. The bourgeoisie, whether big or small, of the dominant nation is able to deal more swiftly and decisively with its competitor. Quote-unquote forces are united and a series of restrictive measures is put into operation against the quote-unquote alien bourgeoisie, measures passing into acts of repression. The struggle spreads from the economic sphere to the political sphere. Restrictions of freedom of movement, repression of language, restriction of franchise, closing of schools, religious restrictions, and so on, are piled upon the head of the quote-unquote competitor. And if you've noticed, that's what Ukraine was doing to its Russian-speaking citizens. Of course, such measures are designed not only in the interests of the bourgeois classes of the dominant nation, but also in furtherance of the specially cased, specifically cased aims, so to speak, of the ruling bureaucracy. But from the point of view of the results achieved, this is quite immaterial. The bourgeois class and the bureaucracy in this matter go hand in hand, whether it be in Austria-Hungary or in Russia. The bourgeoisie of the oppressed nation, repressed on every hand, is naturally stirred into movement. It appeals to its native folk and begins to shout about the fatherland, claiming that its own cause is the cause of the nation as a whole. It recruits itself an army from among its countrymen in the interest of, quote-unquote, the fatherland. Nor do the folk always remain unresponsive to its appeals. They rally around its banner. The repression from above affects them too and provokes their discontent. Thus, the national movement begins. The strength of the national movement is determined by the degree to which the wide strata of the nation the proletariat and peasantry participate in it. Whether the proletariat rallies to the banner of bourgeois nationalism depends on the degree of development of class antagonisms, on the class consciousness and degree of organization of the proletariat. The class conscious proletariat has its own tried banner and has no need to rally to the banner of the bourgeoisie. As far as the peasants are concerned, their participation in the national movement depends primarily on the character of the repressions. If the repressions affect the land, as was in the case in Ireland, then the mass of the peasants immediately 
rallied to the banner of the national movement. Next slide. From what has been said, it will be clear that the national struggle under the conditions of rising capitalism is the struggle of bourgeois classes among themselves. Sometimes the bourgeoisie succeeds in drawing the proletariat into the national movement. And then the national struggle externally assumes a nationwide character. But this is so only externally. In its essence, it is always a bourgeois struggle, one that is to the advantage and profit mainly of the bourgeoisie. But it does not by any means follow that the proletariat should not put up a fight against the policy of national oppression. Restriction of freedom of movement, disenfranchisement, repression of language, closing of schools, and other forms of persecution affect the workers no less, if not more than the bourgeoisie. Such a state of affairs can only serve to retard the free development of the intellectual forces of the proletariat of subject nations. One cannot speak seriously of a full development of the intellectual faculties of the Tartar or Jewish worker if he is not allowed to use his native language at meetings and lectures and if his schools are closed down. But the policy of nationalist persecution is dangerous to the cause of the proletariat also on another account. It diverts the attention of large strata from social questions, questions of the class struggle, to national questions, questions quote-unquote common to the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And this creates a favorable soil for lying propaganda about harmony of interests. For glossing over the class interests of the proletariat and for the intellectual enslavement of the workers. This creates a serious obstacle to the cause of uniting the workers of all nationalities. If a considerable proportion of the Polish workers are still in intellectual bondage to the bourgeois nationalists, if they still stand aloof from the international labor movement, it is chiefly because the age-old anti-Polish policy of the quote-unquote powers that be creates the soil for this bondage and hinders the emancipation of the workers from it. But the policy of persecution does not stop there. It not infrequently passes from a system of oppression to a system of inciting nations against each other, to a system of massacres and pogroms. Of course, the latter system is not everywhere and always possible. But where it is possible, in the absence of elementary civil rights, it frequently assumes horrifying proportions and threatens to drown the cause of unity of the workers in blood and tears. The Caucasus and South Russia furnish numerous examples. Quote-unquote, divide and rule. Such is the purpose of the policy of incitement. And where such a policy succeeds, it is a tremendous evil for the proletariat and a serious obstacle to the cause of uniting the workers of all the nationalities in the state. But the workers are interested in the complete amalgamation of all their fellow workers into a single international army in their speedy and final emancipation from intellectual bondage to the bourgeoisie and in the full and free development of the individual forces of their brothers, whatever nation they may belong to. The workers therefore combat and will continue to combat the policy of national oppression in all of its forms from the most subtle to the most crude, as well as the policy of inciting nations against each other 
in all its forms. Social democracy in all countries therefore proclaims the right of nations to self-determination. The right of self-determination means that only the nation itself has the right to determine its destiny, that no one has the right forcibly to interfere in the life of the nation, to destroy its schools and other institutions, to violate its habits and customs, to repress its language or curtail its rights. Next slide. This, of course, does not mean that social democracy will support every custom and institution of a nation. While combating the coercion of any nation, it will uphold only the right of the nation itself to determine its own destiny. At the same time, agitating against harmful customs and institutions of that nation in order to enable the toiling strata of the nation to emancipate themselves from them. The right of self-determination means that a nation may arrange its life in the way it wishes and has the right to arrange its life on the basis of autonomy. It has the right to enter into federal relations with other nations. It has the right to complete secession. Nations are sovereign and all nations have equal rights. This, of course, does not mean that social democracy will support every demand of a nation. A nation has the right even to return to the old order of things. But this does not mean that social democracy will subscribe to such a decision if taken by some institution of a particular nation. The obligations of social democracy, which defends the interests of the proletariat and the rights of a nation, which consists of various classes, are two different things. In fighting for the right of nations to self-determination, the aim of social democracy is to put an end to the policy of national oppression, to render it impossible, and thereby to remove the grounds of strife between the nations and to take the edge off that strife and reduce it to a minimum. This is what essentially distinguishes the policy of the class-conscious proletariat from the policy of the bourgeoisie, which attempts to aggravate and fan the national struggle and to prolong and sharpen the national movement. And that is why the class-conscious proletariat cannot rally under the quote-unquote national flag of the bourgeoisie. That is why the so-called evolutionary national policy advocated by Bauer cannot become the policy of the proletariat. Bauer's attempt to identify his quote-unquote evolutionary national policy with the policy of the quote-unquote modern working class is an attempt to adapt the class struggle of the workers to the struggle of the nations. The fate of a national movement, which is essentially a bourgeois movement, is naturally bound up with the fate of the bourgeoisie. The final disappearance of a national movement is possible only with the downfall of the bourgeoisie. Only under the reign of socialism can peace be fully established. But even within the framework of capitalism, it is possible to reduce the national struggle to a minimum, to undermine it at the root, to render it as harmless as possible to the proletariat. This is borne out, for example, by Switzerland and America. It requires that the country should be democratized and the nations be given the opportunity of free development. All right, we can go to the discussion period now. Before we do, I just wanted to say um, that this section was very applicable to what's going on in the Donbass region of, well, formerly Ukraine. There was a referendum where they split off. Originally, they were 
going for regional or no um, secession, they wanted to secede from uh, from the Ukrainian state due to the rising threat of fascism and the um, the ethnic cleansing that the fascist regime was pushing. Uh, now the new thing is, as of I think September of last year, the it was. Um, regional autonomy within the Russian state. Um, and this was done because one, they were at the same political order as the Russian uh, state. Uh, they're both bourgeois national uh, or bourgeois democratic as opposed to the fascist Ukraine, but also because uh, it would enable protection under the wing of uh, the Russian military. So I just wanted to add that in there. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from Minnesota, you have the floor. Thank you. Um, I'd also like to say that the another really great text uh, is written by Lenin called The Right of Nations to Self-Determination, which I would also recommend everybody read as well. My question, however, has to do with, I guess, um, the national question in the United States. So someone had mentioned earlier that there are several nations that kind of live in the United States. We have the African-American nation, the Indian nation, and I think that the, the kind of like the nation that we we talk about right now, um, kind of what we consider the United States with made up of multi-different ethnic groups. So if we do follow the line of the right of nations to self-determination, does that mean that all of these nations have the right to make the determination if they want to unite under the same flag if they want to secede, et cetera, et cetera, and go their own way. Well, I, I do want to say, first of all, what we were saying was that there's not one single Black nation, but rather back in the 20s or 30s, there was a Black belt, which would have constituted its own nation because they have a shared territory. Um, again, we wouldn't say, you know, the... African-Americans of the East Coast and the West Coast constituting a single nation, you know, um, and also with the uh, Native Americans, you'd have to go tribe by tribe if they have their own uh, actual nation. Like here we have the, um, in my city, we have the Onondaga Nation where they have uh, essentially a reservation where it's all Onondaga people. That might be considered I don't think it would be within their best interest to secede because they're so small. And also if they did, they'd be uh, completely isolated from everything else, but probably regional autonomy would be the best. And I think that's what they currently have, at least on paper. But I, I think Angelo also wanted to answer. This whole work was written at a different time. It was a different reality when this was written. This was written before 1935. This was written before the change in the world communist movement. People have to understand that because people use this text from a different period in order to prove that what's going on in the Ukraine is Russian imperialism fighting the Ukraine and the Ukraine needs self-determination. I've seen people use this. They're entirely incorrect because 1935, the world changed. How did it change? What came on the scene in 1935? 
that became a world threat to everybody. Does anybody know? It was fascism. fascism. It was fascism. Thank you. That changed everything for communists. No longer was it class against class, but the first thing that we have to do is have a front, a united front, a popular front against fascism. And that's what the Soviet Union did. The epitome of world socialism joined an alliance with the bourgeois capitalist countries, England, France, and the United States. That's why this is very different. Our prime enemy has to be to defeat fascism first. And that was stated by Stalin and Dimitrov. And that's it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And we have a lot of hands going up. So I'm going to ask that the comments remain to 90 seconds. And I'm going to prioritize people who haven't spoke yet. So comrade from Virginia, you have the floor. Yes, two things. Uh, first, um, the, one of the reasons that the Donbass chose to go with Russia is also because after the Russian invasion, that part of Russia is their currency, any, any currency, international trade, uh, they're not recognized by any of the countries in the United Nations. So they're totally locked out from international trade as well, unless they, you know, go through Russia. But, and that just happened recently. But um, also my question was, more of a clarification. In this writing, when it says social democracy, he's talking about socialism, right? Like, um, like when the you know the party was called Social Democratic for the revolution in 1917. Am I correct? Yes, you're correct yeah. on that. It was that's written in 1912. Yeah, that's why. Okay. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from California, you have the floor. Okay, comrade. About the right of nations for self self determination. Remember when the Soviet Union was dissolved, did you know who was the first republic to secede? It was Estonia. And you know what reason they gave? So-called communists. They said, we're just applying our right to self-determination. So they used this against the USSR. So self-determination is good if it's under our direction, our ideology, not the enemy's ideology. Another example would be Hong Kong, would be Tibet in China. They say, how about their right to self-determination? What they have in mind is to break up the People's Republic of China using this kind of uh, right, which is a good right under our direction not under their direction, because we know what they want. We want the correct way, the nation under uh, socialism, under the working class, and each nation as sister nations, you know, and hopefully building a union of nations like the USSR was, or example, China is with different nationalities. Okay, so that's a double-edged sword. Okay. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from Alaska, you have the floor. I'd also like to bounce off of what Charmant said and bring it back to also the American question. More or less, uh, the history of the uh, you know native population here is that it's been thoroughly uh, oppressed, thoroughly uh, assimilated to the point that you know they a lot of the nations have lost their original tongues and have uh, assimilated to using American English. 
Fortunately, a lot of the cultures have been trying to regain their language, regain the culture, but it's a, such a slow and hard process, especially when you have to do it on your own dime. A good example of that is in Alaska, we still have uh, survivors of the uh, forced assimilation policy from the uh, colonial period up here. And uh, thankfully, they've been, uh, you know, regrowing their own language and culture. But I think the best course of action with uh, advice from them and, you know, listening to their opinions would be that a lot of these native cultures, a lot of these uh, minority populations should be, well, advised to have the offering of a full autonomous regions to help redevelop their cultures, redevelop, you know, redevelop themselves as a people to uh, spring out of the uh, dark ages and, uh, you know, have a chance to uh, fully develop themselves as a people once more and re regain their own direction and autonomy under the uh, red banner. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from Virginia, you have the floor. I'm just going to quickly read a section from Dimitrov. And this is about uh, national nihilism, which is what Dimitrov is criticizing. The American fascists appeal to the traditions of the War of Independence, the traditions of Washington and Lincoln. Communists who suppose that all this has nothing to do with the cause of the working class, who do nothing to enlighten the masses on the past of their people in historically correct fashion, in a genuinely Marxist-Leninist spirit, who do nothing to link the present struggle with the people's revolutionary traditions and past voluntarily hand over to the fascist falsifiers all that is valuable in the historical past of the nation so that the fascists may fool the masses. Comrades, we are concerned with every important question, not only of the present and the future, but also the past of our peoples. We communists are the irreconcilable opponents in principle of bourgeois nationalism in all forms, but we are not supporters of national nihilism and should never act as such. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, comrade. Comrade from Missouri, you have the floor. Comrade General Secretary mentioned that a lot of things changed with this book in 1935 when fascism was a new age. Did the, I noticed that in the passage it says that all nations have equal rights. Did that change for fascist nations, or is that still equal rights for all nations? Thank you. Yeah, we must remember that when we talk about fascists, we talk about fascist states, not nations. The nationalities themselves are not fascist. It's the states that are the fascists are in control of that are fascist. We must remember that nation and state are two separate things. Yeah, and I, I also wanted to add that fascists by their nature are imperialists. It's within their interest to eliminate all other nations that they see as competitors. So in that way, I didn't grab the, that section from this book, uh, but Stalin does talk about how um, right to self-determination does not extend to that nation then violating another nation's right to self-determination as is within the fascist nature. Um, so there, there's that. And also we have to understand that in this last section, we're talking about we're pushing for what's within the best interests of the proletariat. Now, bourgeois democracy, you know, is better than a feudal society and it's better than fascism, 
but we're still going to push for a socialist state. But if the choice is between a bourgeois democratic state or a fascist state, it's obviously the bourgeois democratic one. All right, thank you, comrade. And comrade from Rhode Island, you have the floor. Hey, um, I just wanted to say that I've heard some people talking about, you know, when when is the distinction, right? And I think I gave the example of the Black population in the U.S., specifically in the South, and whether or not that would that would constitute. So what I would just kind of like to say is uh, Strategy for a Black Agenda by Henry Winston is a great read. It goes into this a lot, and it breaks down distinctions, and he provides a very uh, dialectical analysis of when that is and isn't true, specifically for um, the Black population in the South. And he sort of makes the big distinction of, as he phrases it, I'm reading it here, the massive penetration of monopoly capital throughout the South as being sort of the cutoff point as when that stopped being true. But um, yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent read. And you can find a, a PDF of it, of the whole book online for free. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I see the hands that are up, but we do have to make sure that we get the rest of our presentation. So if we can go back to the presentation. Okay, false solution. That means nationalist separation. That's a false solution. We spoke above of the formal aspect of the Austrian national program and of the methodological grounds which make the Austrian program impossible for the Russian Marxists simply to adapt the example of Austrian social democracy and make the latter's program the program of Russia. Let us now examine the essence of the program itself. What then is the national program of the Austrian social democrats? Now remember, we're talking about this period of time, 1912 and before then. It is expressed in two words, cultural national autonomy. This means first that autonomy would be granted, let us say, not to a Bohemia or Poland, which are inhabited mainly by Czechs and Poles, but to the Czechs and to the Poles generally, irrespective of the territory, no matter what part of Austria they inhabit. That is why this autonomy is called national and not territorial. It means, secondly, that the Czechs, the Poles, the Germans, and so on, scattered over the various parts of Austria, taken personally as individuals, not the collective, are to be organized into integral nations and are as such to form part of the Austrian state. In this way, Austria would represent not a union of autonomous regions, but basically a union of autonomous nationalities constituted irrespective of territory. It means that the national institutions, which are to be created for the purpose for only over cultural matters, not political matters. Specifically, political questions would be reserved for the Austrian parliament, which is called 
the Reichsrat. That is why this autonomy is also called cultural. Cultural national autonomy. And here is the text of the Austrian program adopted by the Austrian Social Democratic Party at their Congress in 1899, the Brun Congress. Having referred to the fact that, quote, national dissension in Austria is hindering stopping political progress, end quote. That, quote, the final solution of the national question is primarily a cultural necessity, end quote. And that, quote, the solution is possible only in a genuinely democratic society constituted on the basis of universal, direct, and equal suffrage, which means voting. The program goes on to say the preservation and the development of the national peculiarities of the people of Austria is possible only on the basis of equal rights and by avoiding all oppression. Hence, all bureaucratic state centralism and the feudal privileges of individual province must first of all be rejected. So they're saying reject centralization and deal with localization. Quote, under these conditions, and only under these conditions, will it be possible to set up national order in Austria in place of national dissension, namely on the following principles, and this is what they're based on, the points of unity. Number one, Austria must be transformed into a democratic state federation of nationalities. Number two, the historical crown provinces must be replaced by nationally delineated self-governing corporations, in each of which legislative administrative shall be entrusted to national parliaments elected on the basis of universal, direct, and equal suffrage. Number three, all of self-governing regions of one and the same nation must jointly form a single national union which shall manage its national affairs on the absolutely autonomous basis. And number four, the rights of national minorities must be guaranteed by a special law passed by the imperial parliament. This program ends with an appeal for the solidarity of all nations of Austria. And there's the quote. Now, Stalin is talking. It is not difficult to see that this program retains certain traces of what he called territorialism, but that in general, it gives a formulation of national autonomy. It is not without good reason that Springer, the first agitator on behalf of cultural national autonomy, greets this program with enthusiasm. Bauer also supports this program, 
calling it a theoretical victory for national autonomy only in the interest of greater clarity, he proposes, Bauer, that point four be replaced by a more definite formulation, which would declare the necessity of, quote, constituting the national minority within each self-governing region into a public corporation. Can you believe this guy? End quote. For the management of educational and other cultural affairs, such is the national program of the Austrian Social Democrats. Let us examine its scientific foundations. Let us see how Austrian Social Democratic Party justifies the so-called cultural national autonomy that it advocates. Let us turn to the theoreticians of cultural national autonomy, Springer and Bauer. By the way, if you didn't know, Stalin is opposed to this formula, and he's going to explain why. The starting point of national autonomy is the conception of a nation as a union of individuals. Notice this, without regard to a definite territory. According to Bauer, the Austrian Social Democratic Party is striving by the creation of these interclass institutions, interclass, quote, to make national culture the possession of all the people and therefore unite all the members of the country into a national cultural community, Alex of Stalin. One might think that all this concerns Austria alone, but Bauer does not agree. He emphatically declares that national autonomy is essential also for other countries, which like Austria, consist of several different nationalities. Quote, in the multinational state, which by the way, we live in in this country, according to Bauer, the working class of all the nations oppose the national power of the property classes with the demand for national autonomy. Then imperfectedly substituting national autonomy for the self-determination of a nation. Bauer continues, thus national autonomy, the self-determination of nations will necessarily become the constitutional program of the workers of all the nations in a multinational state, end quote. But Bauer goes still further. He profoundly believes that the interclass, quote, national unions, end quote, constituted, in quote, by Bauer himself and Springer will serve as a sort of prototype for the future socialist society. For Bauer knows that, quote, the socialist system of society will divide humanity into nationally delimited communities, that under socialism, they will take place, quote, a grouping of humanity into autonomous national communities, end quote. That thus, quote, socialist society will undoubtedly present a checkered picture of national unions of people 
and territorial corporations, end quote. And that accordingly, the socialist principle of nationality is a higher synthesis of the national principle and national autonomy. Enough, it would seem. These are the arguments for cultural national autonomy as given by Bauer and Springer. The first thing that strikes the eye of the reader is the entirely inexplicable and absolutely unjustifiable substitution of national autonomy for the term self-determination of nations. One or the other, either Bauer failed to understand the meaning of self-determination, or Bauer did understand it, but for some reason or other, he deliberately narrowed its meaning. For there is no doubt, A, that cultural national autonomy presupposes, that's the key word, the integrity of the multinational state, whereas self-determination goes outside the framework of this integrity. And B, that self-determination endows a nation with complete rights, whereas national autonomy endows it only with cultural rights. That in the first place. In the second place, a combination of internal and external conditions is fully possible at some future time by virtue of which one or another of the nationalities may decide to secede from a multinational state, say from Austria. Did not the Ruthenian Social Democrats at the Bruin Party Congress announce their readiness to unite the quote-unquote two parts of their people into one whole? What, in such a case, becomes of national autonomy, which is quote-unquote inevitable for the proletariat of all the nations. That sort of quote-unquote solution of the problem is that it mechanically squeezes nations into the Procrustean bed of an integral state. Further, national autonomy is contrary to the whole course of development of nations. It calls for the organization of nations, but can they be artificially welded together in life if economic development tears whole groups from them? and disperses these groups over various regions? There is no doubt that in the early stages of capitalism, nations become welded together. But there is also no doubt that in the higher stages of capitalism, a process of dispersion of nations sets in, a process whereby a whole number of groups separates off from the nations, going off in search of a livelihood and subsequently settling permanently in other regions of the state. In the course of this, these settlers lose their old connections and acquire new ones in their new domicile, and from generation to generation acquire new habits and new tastes, and possibly a new language. The question arises, is it possible to unite into a single national union groups that have grown so distinct? Where are the magic links to unite which cannot be untied? Is it conceivable that, for instance, the Germans of the Baltic provinces and the Germans of Transcaucasia can be united into a single nation. But if it is not conceivable and not possible, wherein does national autonomy differ from the utopia of the old nationalist, 
who endeavored to turn back the wheel of history. But the unity of a nation diminishes not only as a result of migration, it diminishes also from internal causes, owing to the growing acuteness of the class struggle. In the early stages of capitalism, one can still speak of a quote unquote common culture of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. But as large scale industry develops and the class struggle becomes more and more acute, this quote unquote common culture begins to melt away. One cannot seriously speak of the quote unquote common culture of a nation when employers and workers of one and the same nation cease to understand each other. What quote unquote common destiny can there be when the bourgeoisie thirsts for war and the proletariat declares quote unquote war on war? Can a single interclass national union be formed from such supposed elements? And after this, can one speak of the quote unquote union of all the members of the nation into a national cultural community? Is it not obvious that national autonomy is contrary to the whole course of the class struggle? But let us assume for a moment that the slogan, quote unquote, organize the nation is practicable. One might understand bourgeoisie nationalist parliamentarians endeavoring to organize a nation for the purpose of securing additional votes. But since when have social democrats begun to occupy themselves with, quote unquote, organizing nations, quote unquote, constituting nations, quote unquote, creating nations? What sort of social democrats are they who in the epoch of extreme intensification of the class struggle organize interclass national unions? Until now, the Austrian, as well as every other social democratic party, had one task before it, namely to organize the proletariat. That task has apparently become quote unquote antiquated. Springer and Bauer are now setting a new task a more absorbing task, namely to quote unquote, create, to quote unquote, organize a nation. However, logic has its obligations. He who adopts national autonomy must also adopt this quote unquote, new task. But to adopt the latter means to abandon the class position and to take the path of nationalism. Bauer's desire to represent socialist society as a quote, checkered picture of national unions of persons and territorial corporations, quote unquote, is a timid attempt to substitute for Marx's concept of socialism, a revised version of Bakunin's conception. The history of socialism proves that every such attempt contains the elements of inevitable failure. There is no need to mention the kind of, quote, socialist principle of nationality, unquote, glorified by Bauer which in our opinion, substitutes for the socialist principle of the class struggle, the bourgeoisie, quote, principle of nationality, unquote. If national autonomy is based on such a dubious principle, it must be admitted that it can only cause harm to the working class movement. True, such nationalism is not so transparent for it is skillfully masked by socialist phrases but is all the more harmful to the proletariat for that reason. We can always cope with open nationalism for it can easily be discerned. It is much more difficult to combat nationalism when it is masked and unrecognizable beneath its mask. 
protected by the armor of socialism, it is less vulnerable and more tenacious. Implanted among the workers, it poisons the atmosphere and spreads harmful ideas of mutual distrust and segregation among the workers of the different nationalities. But this does not exhaust the harm caused by national autonomy. It prepares the ground not only for the segregation of nations, but also for breaking up the united labor movement. The idea of national autonomy creates the psychological conditions for the division of the United Workers Party into separate parties built on national lines. The breakup of the party is followed by the breakup of the trade unions and complete segregation is the result. In this way, the United Class Movement is broken up into separate national rivulets. All right, and with that, we'll go ahead and have our last round of questions and comments. Uh, yeah, it's kind of moot after the section on uh, uh, national separatism, but uh, I was just going to say on the uh, topic of uh, secession, uh, secession from whom and on what basis? Civil wars, secessions, they don't just happen because of uh, some group of people's rationalization. They happen because of real developments in economy and in uh, you know, socioeconomic relations. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from Pennsylvania, you have the floor. On the um, general sector from earlier that like all nations are like expanded in the past based on like colonizing and stuff that there's still a difference between like more like um, nations that have existed for thousands of years and more recent like settler colonial projects. Like in Israel, we don't say that like Israel deserves to exist because there's a, because there are like westernized Jews that have moved there. We say that Palestine deserves its own national liberation and to have its territory returned. So like similarly in the United States, we should support for material land pact proposals. It's just like literally just giving their territory back. Nations that are like on reservations or whatever, they should be given the option and like a socialist future to return to their area that they have lived in for thousands of years and not have it be as like small and stuff because they still experience like a special oppression that's not just class-based it's for it's even furthered by the colonial lines yeah thank you for that comrade but i just want to offer a correction not all of us are opposed to the existence of israel as a state now we recognize that there was a colonial project when it was created. And we recognize that there was a problem when it comes to the violence that's been committed against the Palestinian people that are there. But we're not inherently against the existence of Israel in the same way with the United States. And when it comes to the indigenous reservations and territories, um, yeah, they have that option uh, when it comes to you know self-determination and whether or not they want to be on their own, but like a comrade brought up earlier, I don't know that it would serve them very well, uh, considering that then they'd be landlocked and without much of a connection to the outside world for them to be able to trade and, and so on and so forth. So I, I just wanted to offer that correction there. Uh, comrade from Canada. Yeah, so is nationalism just the word itself generally? Is that 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 comes from the bourgeois. It's a bourgeois term. I know Marxists will write about it, but is nationalism a bourgeois term? Thank you. Well, I, I could uh, answer um, 
Yeah, generally the national liberation struggle is a bourgeois liberation. It does, however, benefit the, um, well, in certain cases, it benefits the proletariat that are being also oppressed, not just by their national bourgeoisie, but by an external bourgeoisie. Um, So it does play into the interests of the proletariat. However, if not done with the leadership of the proletariat, it descends into the national bourgeoisie, treating them just the same or even worse than the the external bourgeoisie uh, treated them. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, Comrade from North Carolina, I don't know if you spoke tonight. You have the floor. Thank you. So I wanted to comment briefly because a lot of comrades are talking about, you know, nations like America or, you know, nations that have taken over from other nations. And Comrade Angelo is correct. When you're looking historically, uh, all nations revolve around groups moving in and out. And some groups will come in. Usually, historically, it's very small groups that can take over larger areas. The big thing is not necessarily what happened historically. What happens historically helps us understand what's going on at the present. What we need to focus on, we're talking about what's here in America or in other countries like Israel was mentioned a few times, is how are these different groups treated currently in the nation? And in America, we have a lot of problems. And it doesn't matter if we're trying to frame it in a settler colonialism or whatever other framework a lot of different groups want to talk about. The problem is there were groups that were taken over, but were never integrated in, that were pushed aside, were exploited, were killed, and are still suffering different levels of violence and determination. So what we need to do when we talk about the different groups that are inside the U.S. is talk about ways that we can help every working class people and let them uh, build up working class power in the nation. 96. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from New York, you have the floor. Just to reiterate, secession from whom on what grounds? All right, comrade and comrade Angelo, you have the floor. Okay. We have to understand what the word dialectics means. Nobody has understood or mentioned that word. Dialectics means simply what Marx talks about has to do with nothing is static. Everything is changing because nature is changing constantly. What was true yesterday may not be true today or tomorrow. That's what dialectics is. So a person can play a role that helps the working class at one point in their historical development and at another point can be negative to the working class. And so therefore, there is nothing in stone. So when we talk about the issue of 100 years, you create a society that has, if you destroy that society, you're going to create, especially the ones that are dealing with immigration, you're going to deal with a new group of refugees. So those who want to destroy Israel or the United States, what they're going to have in reality is a new group of refugees leaving an area. We're not going to be solving the problem. We're replacing one group of refugees with another group of refugees because another society has settled there now. 
Ukraine today is not the same Ukraine we had in 1991. A whole generation, 30, 35, 40 year olds, have grown up, have families who have a different understanding of the Ukraine than the ones that we had before under the Soviet Union. So the land back thing does not hold. It doesn't make any sense. It's not dialectical. The people that existed at that time, for example, Blacks that existed during the time of slavery, they are dead. It is a new generation that has been brought up who have families, who have nothing to do with that. There is a connection in the results of slavery, but directly there's nothing there. So this static thinking that everything is the same is not Marxist. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up our class for tonight. Thank you all for your wonderful comments and questions. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.